Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Welcome again to our ministry. I'm Ken Bear, one of the pastors at Celebrate Seniors. And today we're going to continue our examination of the book of Acts. It's in a series that we call Unstoppable. We call it Unstoppable because we see in this book of Acts the early church and the things that they did and it was truly unstoppable. It was then and it continues to this day. Today we'll be reading from chapter 2 in the book of Acts. We've already seen that the apostles, along with a group that has now grown to 120, were in a room when the Holy Spirit descended with a, a mighty wind. They could hear it outside and then there were tongues, language that could be understood by the people in the street. The people in the street heard the noise and they were, it called to them, it, it, it called their attention. And as a result, an amazing uh, thing happened. The people came to, uh, to see where the apostles were, and Peter came out, and he gave them his, his very first sermon, the very first sermon of the church. Peter's preaching was powerful, and the Holy Spirit is, is still moving in the hearts of the people today. The people then were listening. They had heard Peter, and we'll pick up the story today, beginning in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2. This is what Peter says. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received the, his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and their goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and adding favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So this, this passage today begins with the Jews asking Peter and the apostles, what shall we do? Uh, have you ever asked that question? Uh, have you ever been going down a, a path and just kind of minding your own business, feeling pretty comfortable? Your world kind of makes sense to you and things are going along according to plan, then wham, all of a sudden, something happens. The situation has changed. It could be a, a, a number of things that happen. For, you know, for example, uh, you go to work only to find that the, the doors are locked. Or maybe it's the doors are open, but your services are no longer needed. You're in the doctor's office for a routine exam, at least what you thought was a routine exam. 
but then the doctor has to deliver some very disturbing news. There's something that's happened. Maybe you've been married for years and everything seems to be okay, but all of a sudden infidelity is discovered in the marriage, which is going to mean possible separation, possible divorce. Now, these are all bad things that I mentioned that happened, and I know that often there are, there are good things that happen too, but we want to get to this question, what shall we do? The circumstances confronting these, these pious Jews, these Jews that were in Jerusalem observing the Feast of Pentecost, they heard the news from Peter and it was earth-shaking. They were this was the worst possible news that they, they could have heard. Uh, Peter had told them that their long-awaited Messiah, the king that was to be born, the king that was to come and deliver Israel, had come, and they had missed it. They had crucified the Lord. He was the Lord and the Messiah, and they, they missed the boat. They were guilty. Instead of embracing Jesus, they rejected him. Many of them were likely in the crowd just about a month before yelling, crucify him, crucify him. The scripture says that they were cut to the heart. And, and that's a great expression. We even use it to, to this day. Cut to the heart means that they were completely overcome with emotional anguish, with, with grief, with suffering. You know, something has shaken their world so much that it will never truly be the same. Luke, the author of both the Gospel of Luke as, as well as this book of Acts, uses the same phrase, cut to the heart, three times. In, in all three cases, the Gospel is being preached. It has a profound impact on the Jewish listeners, these religious descendants of Abraham. The scripture tells us that these, these Jews that had just heard the preaching by Peter earlier had heard the manifestation of the Holy Spirit and they heard the praises of God. The scriptures say they were cut to the heart, but then it says, they asked the question, what shall we do? You know, I, I really like that question. Uh, and while this question is asked in desperation, realize that these Jews that are asking the question are in a great position. Uh, they don't know it yet, but they're in exactly the, the right spot. They're right where God wants them. And it's because, it's because, not despite, it's because they are desperate. One of, my, one of the teaching pastors at my former church, Dr. John Maxwell, uh, had a saying, and he said, he said, if you're, if you're really desperate, that's a, that's a good thing, because Jesus can work with that. All of the miracles happen when people are, are desperate. If, if you have no need, no desperation, there's no miracle. And, and that's what's happening here in the second chapter of Acts. The Holy Spirit is, is truly working. The tongues have stopped, but the Holy Spirit is still working in the lives of the people. He's working in the hearts of those that are in the audience, the ones that have heard the message by Peter, the ones that it says were cut to the heart. You know, I, I believe that where the Spirit of God is um, and where the, God, the Spirit of God takes us, often there's a, a point of decision, a point of conviction that often happens when we're desperate. The scripture says that, the scripture that says they were cut to the heart uh, is, is sometimes translated as they were pricked in their heart. You may have a Bible that says pricked in their heart. Uh, th this word is interesting too because the idea of being pricked is something that happens suddenly. 
Yeah, being pricked is not always not so horrible. I mean, you go to the doctor, sometimes they prick your finger. It happens. People that have diabetes often prick their fingers many times during the day. But being pricked in the heart is something completely different. That's a, that's a different animal altogether. Uh, it's, it's a sharp instrument that's being embedded into your heart. They're pricked to the heart. They're cut to the heart. So, so what is it that Peter was referring to that caused this great anguish on the people? Why did they, why did they cry out? Well, likely, it's a, it's a number of things. Remember that the Holy Spirit is, is still working in their lives. They're, he's still working with them to have them hear what they, they truly need to hear. It's not that so much of what Peter says, it's, it's what the listeners actually hear. You know, it, it's, it's true. It, it happens all the time, even to this day. I've been to, to seminars with pastors and worship leaders and, and leaders from other churches, and we're all gathered together, and we, we go to the seminars, and we, we hear all the different speakers. And often we'll get together later, and, and we'll talk about what we, what we learned, what we've heard at the seminar. And it's amazing. Often what we've heard individually is all very unique. It's very particular to the, to the individual. And I believe that's the Holy Spirit that's teaching us, that's guiding us, that's instructing us. So what were the things that caused them to cry out? Uh, what, what did the, why did the scripture say they were, they were cut to the heart? There must be some reason. Well, there are three things, I believe, and, and let's make this the first point. They were dealing with their, their own sorrow. Their Messiah had been put to death. Jesus had been crucified. They had been waiting for the Messiah for, for centuries. And there were some shepherds about 30 years ago that had said that angels had appeared to them and told them that the Messiah had been born. But those were rumors have kind of died out. But but they were waiting. They were still waiting for the Messiah. Some people said that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was a great miracle worker, but the religious leaders had, had put him to death with the help of the Romans. The religious leaders and their religion had actually failed the people. This is one of the reasons why they were cut to the heart. The religious leaders knew the scriptures. They had even met Jesus, but instead of embracing him, they rejected him and put him to death. The religion system had also failed. Uh, the religious system, all of the feasts and the sacrifices and the ordinances that were given by Moses to the people of, of Israel ha had failed them because all of those ordinances, those sacrifices, those feasts were to point to the Messiah. But Jesus had come. Jesus was called the Lamb of God. He died on Passover, rose on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But the religious system failed them. That was a horrible thought. Their trust had been in the fact that they were the chosen people. They were descendants of Abraham. They had the temple and the priests, but yet they still missed it. They felt like a knife had pierced their heart. Their sorrow was beyond what they could bear. But there's more. Here's the second point. And this is related. They were cut to the heart because the Holy Spirit was convicting them that they were personally responsible they had not just rejected the Messiah, they had crucified the Messiah. Just like the Romans, they were culpable. The Holy Spirit will ultimately show them that it was their sin that held Jesus on the cross, but for now they were experiencing a, a sense of guilt. This was horrible, and this is why they were shouting out, what shall we do? Now the third point, third of three, 
The third thing that was likely causing them pain was that Peter had told them that Jesus, this man that had died, had risen again and was alive. He had risen from the dead and many had witnessed it. They missed it and Peter was suggesting, he was more than suggesting, that Jesus would know who his enemies are. So there are three good reasons for their anguish. At the same time, it was the Holy Spirit that was doing the work, a good work in their heart. These people had heard the good news and they were receptive now to the Word of God. They wanted to hear from Peter. Perhaps Peter could tell them what they needed to do. Some opportunity for redemption, some instructions that would give them comfort. Some way out of this, this horrible condition that they were in. The Holy Spirit was pressing in. They were ready to truly hear the gospel. The Holy Spirit was showing them how desperate they really were. Remember, I, I said that my, te when my teaching pastor friend, Dr. John Maxwell, used to say that if you're desperate, being desperate is really good because Jesus can work with that. So when they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter gave them a response. And let me pick up Peter's response from the scripture starting in verse 38. Peter answered them, Repent and be immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is made to you, to your children, and to all who are far off, yes, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them to tell them, Save yourselves from this twisted generation. You know, so Peter tells them what to do. And if we keep reading, we'll find out that 3,000 of them did exactly what Peter told them to do. The Bible says they were added to the church, this, this infant church that had just been birthed there that day on, on Pentecost, and 3,000 were being added that day. So let's take a look at what they were told to do. First of all, Peter told them they needed to repent. Now, we hear that word repent very often. It's, it's, in the, it's all through the Bible. John the Baptist was specifically known for it. Peter came to John specifically to repent and be baptized. After Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, he began his ministry. And, he began, and the Gospel records that Jesus came out of the desert saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Greek word for repentance used in the New Testament is metanoia. And metanoia is a compound Greek word, meaning there's two words that are being combined. Meta, which means to change, and noia, which is a thought or, or your mind. So the idea of repentance is really not about feeling sorry or getting caught or making some kind of New Year's resolutions, although some of those things are involved in it. But the idea of metanoia, of repentance, is that we need to start changing our way of thinking. So what were these Jews in Jerusalem on Pentecost? What, what did they need to change? Why did they need to repent? What was their mindset that needed this, this alteration? Well, the first thing that's needed is to change an understanding of who, who Jesus is. Uh, they had crucified uh, Jesus 50 days earlier and they had thought a certain way about Jesus. Uh, they thought he was just a man. Maybe he was a miracle worker, but when he was, when the priest brought him before Pilate, when the leaders decided to crucify him, they thought maybe he had done something that justified this death sentence. There must have been something about Jesus that made him worthy of death. 
Now the Holy Spirit was showing them, the Holy Spirit was leading them, they were beginning to change their mind. They needed to repent, they needed to change their mind about who Jesus is, who Jesus was and is. Jesus is the long-promised Messiah, the, the Holy One. Their religious system hadn't saved them from this terrible situation. Their religious leaders had been wrong, horribly wrong. The first thing um, was understanding who Jesus is. Did you know that that continues to this day as being the, the very first thing that people need to understand in, uh, in becoming a Christian? It's the hallmark of the relationship with God. Who is this Jesus? Uh, we see in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 16th chapter, uh, Matthew writes about this. Then Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and some Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. You know, every religion on earth, with the exception of Christianity, is based on what you need to do. All of them make you do something. You, you need to pray three times a day. You need to make a pilgrimage. You need to fast at a certain time. You don't eat between sunup and sundown during a certain season. Say a specific pray, prayer. Say that Allah is God and that Muhammad is the prophet. It doesn't matter what religion it is. All of these religions other than Christianity is a religion of do. Christianity however is, is completely different. It begins and ends with an understanding, a, a change of mind in understanding who Jesus Christ is. If we understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that Jesus came and died on Calvary, and that he rose again on the third day, we start to understand who Jesus truly is. The Holy Spirit leads us and teaches us, and then we become members of the body of Christ when the Holy Spirit indwells us, comes to live inside of us. As opposed to a religion of do, Christianity, all the members of the body of Christ, embrace what Christ has, has done. So instead of a religion of do, we have a religion of what Christ has already done. And this is what Peter is telling these Jews. He says to, to repent, to change their mind. That was the first thing that Peter told them to do. He said, embrace the Christ. And then Peter says this. I want to go on to the second part of what Peter said. He says, be immersed every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That word immersed in Greek is the word baptizo. That's where, that's why some of your translations will say be immersed and some will say be baptized. But that's what baptism means. Bapti to baptize means to, to immerse, to push it under the water. So Jesus says, or Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of, some, some, uh, for, for the forgiveness of sins. So Peter gives them something to do. Did you know that there are many people today that consider themselves Christians, but they've never really done what Peter has told them to do? Let me, let me tell you my story. This is, this is my, part of my testimony. 
You know, each one of us should have a testimony, something that, that brings them to, to Christ, a reason for the hope that lives within us, our own personal testimony. This is just a, a peace of mind. I was in my, my 20s. Carol and I were married at the time, um, and Carol was pregnant. And when she got pregnant, we realized that our parents, and based on our religious traditions, would want the baby to be christened um, at, at some time after it was born. And at the time, we weren't going to church. It wasn't that we had anything against church. It's just that we really hadn't gone to church much at all since we had been married. So we decided to go ahead and go to church. Well, no, we no, so knew, no, no sooner got to church, and somebody invited us to go to a, to a Bible study class that was meeting on Tuesday. And we were new there. We thought it might be a great way to meet some people, and we did. But we started reading the Bible. Now, in addition to that, there was a... A gentleman at work, a friend of mine, his name was Lou, who used to carry a Bible around with him and started to challenge me about what I, I truly believed, what I, what I really believed. And, and what, what he was saying was that, that Lou was saying that perhaps I had more faith in my religious system, in this religion of do, than I was a follower of Jesus Christ. He showed me that my belief was in doing certain things, obeying the Ten Commandments, following the rules, going to church at least at some times, and calling myself a Christian. So as I began to read the Bible really for the first time, I realized that I may have been doing some of the right things, but I certainly wasn't following Jesus. I realized that God had sent Jesus to die for, for my sin. What I was unable to do to live a life that was truly place, pleasing for God Jesus had already accomplished. I had a debt that I couldn't possibly pay, but Jesus had already paid the price. In Romans 10:9, the Bible says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Being saved, being, being born again, accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior, these were all words that I, I, that I was uncomfortable with. There were things that I had heard, but they, they weren't part of my religious tradition. That was nearly 40 years ago, and, and I still remember it to this day. I had never really heard those things before, or if I had heard them, I never really listened. Just like the Jews at Pentecost, I needed to repent. I needed to, to change my mind. Jesus was my Lord and my Savior. He had died on the cross for my sin. So I followed what Romans 10.9 said. I declared with my mouth that Jesus was Lord. I believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead, and I got saved. So let's go on to the next thing that Peter said. After telling us to repent, Peter says this. He says, repent and be baptized or immerse every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about repentance. Um, I gave you my testimony, but let's talk a little bit about, about baptism. Notice that Peter tells them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is again an expression of their changed mind, their, their belief and their confidence in Jesus alone. Uh, for those of you know me that know me pretty well, you know I'm kind of a church history buff. And I've actually written a couple of books 
talking about church history, but rather than telling you about the history of baptism and how believers would be baptized by walking down into a deep pool and then walking out on the other side and being fully immersed or that it was adults for the first 300 years in the church, it was only adults, not children, uh, that were baptized, again, through immersion. Let me give you three reasons why Christians, why followers of Jesus Christ, should be baptized. Reason number one, Jesus was baptized. And one of the very last things he told his disciples before he ascended into heaven is what's called the Great Commission. And it tells us to baptize. It says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things, all things that I've commanded you. Notice this is a calling, an instruction to both the church as well as to the individual. If the church fails to encourage believers to be baptized, the church is failing in its commission. If we as individuals don't pursue baptism, then we're being disobedient. Reason number two, when we make a decision to follow Jesus, it's the very best decision we could, we could ever make. And it's a decision that needs to be celebrated. It changes our life, our outlook, our eternal destiny. And we should want everyone to know that we made that decision. You know, in some parts of the world, becoming a Christian can be, can be dangerous. Persecution in some parts of the world, like the Middle East and in Asia, is, is actually worse now than it was for the early Christians under the Roman Empire. But for those, for, for then as well as now, baptism is a, is a great way to be public about our faith. It's a joy that is to be shared with our family and friends. It's a great way to show everyone that we've decided to follow Jesus and to be obedient to what he told us to do. Reason number three. One of the ways we would baptize people in South Florida was we'd go out to the ocean and we'd have all the people and there'd be some tents and some family and friends and I would be out in the water with some of my pastor friends and we would be baptizing people. And while we would baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, immediately after saying that, and while they were going down under the water, we would say, buried with Christ in baptism. And then as we bring them out of the water, we'd say, raised to new life in Christ. You see, there's, a, there's something very symbolic about, about baptism. That's what the Bible tells us, that in baptism we're actually buried with Christ. We're buried with Christ. There's a symbolic meaning to some baptism as well. So those are my three simple reasons to, to be baptized. That Jesus was baptized and said we should too. That being baptized is the best way to go public. And number three, there's a great symbolic meaning behind baptism. Now, I'm certainly aware that there are many people that were baptized as an infant. I was uh, as well. Uh, I decided, however, that scripture was encouraging me to go ahead and be baptized as an adult. And both my wife and I followed that about a year after we, we came to Christ. For those of you that have decided that you don't need to be baptized because you were baptized as an infant, I, I want to tell you I, I understand. Uh, the Bible does not teach that baptism saves you. It's an outward sign of what God does through the Holy Spirit inside of you. God already changes you from the inside out. And then we're baptized. So if you've been baptized as an infant and you've decided that you really don't want to be baptized or you don't need to be baptized, I understand. Let me finish up with just a, 
a few last verses. Peter says, for this promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord will call. You know, as these new Jewish believers were baptized and demonstrated their, as they repented and they were baptized and demonstrated their faith, the Bible says that they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It would be given to them just as it was given to this original group in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. It's the fulfillment of the promise of Jesus said that said, I'm going to leave you, but I won't leave you as orphans. Note also in this verse, Jesus didn't tell people to baptize their children. He said the promise of the Holy Spirit would be given to all those that believe in all succeeding generations. The promise is for their children and the whosoevers. You know what a whosoever is. It's whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter continues, and the scriptures say that those who gladly received this word of Peter's were, were baptized. Uh, and there was about 3,000 of them. It doesn't say anywhere that more than 3,000 believed, but only 3,000 were baptized. No, the indication is that 3,000 received this word from Peter. They repented, and all 3,000 were baptized. It then says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. You know, that's a great formula to this day for any church. Stay together. Study together. Worship together. Pray together. Break bread together. There's an interesting verse that then follows. It says in verse 45 that they sold all their possessions so that uh, they were able to divide it among all so that nobody was in need. I, I remember I was in, in junior high, somewhere around eighth grade, and I was in a debate club. And I was given this assignment to debate this, that the early church, because of this verse, was obviously a believer in what's called communism. You know, Karl Marx had the saying, for each according to his ability, to each according to his needs. Uh, but, but friends, this is not communism. This is, this is the church. This is people that are freely given because they're moved by the Holy Spirit. There's no government that's telling them to do this. They're doing it. In verse 46, the Bible says, so they continued daily in fellowship. Uh, this, this word fellowship is, is a word we use often in church. Uh, the Greek word is koinonia. It, it refers to an association, to, to a communion. It's about a shared experience. Uh, the Christian life is not a life to be, to be lived alone. It, it's meant to be full of fellowship, of sharing common experiences. The recent six feet of separation, this social distancing that so many of us are going through right now that has locked down the country for the past few months has become a learning experience for many churches, including our own. Churches like ours have had to rely on video teaching, internet meetings, and infrequent personal contacts. We've learned that while there is much we can do to keep in touch with each other from, with video and audio, there's really no substitute for being face to face, for true communion with each other, heart to heart, being truly together. But my friends, this, this time will pass. You know, some people have asked me how we should respond to this COVID-19 crisis. And I, and I don't have any tremendous wisdom. I can, I can tell you this, however. There are some that have decided that they need to keep their distance. They need to always wear a mask and that the safety is their primary concern. On the other hand, there are those that have thought that perhaps the reaction to this 
pandemic is a little overblown. Uh, our leaders have overreacted, and they're not possibly, they're possibly doing more harm than good, shutting down our businesses and economy, and now people are out of work and desperate financial conditions. But here's the thing. Regardless of the situation, regardless of what side you happen to be on, we are not to fear. The Bible is very clear that we're not to fear and we are not to worry. Let me give you this word of encouragement, some instruction from the scriptures, and we'll, we'll close with this piece of scripture from Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ. You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.